On this episode of Data Driven, Frank and Andy interview Adam Ross Nelson. Adam is a consultant, where he provides insights on data science, machine learning and data governance. He recently wrote a book to help people get started in data science careers. Hello and welcome back to Data Driven, the podcast where we explore the emerging fields of data science, artificial intelligence, and of course, the ever-present data engineering. Uh, although I would say now that we're in season seven, it's not really emerging anymore. You can't go, really. you can't walk 50 feet, you can't scroll down any social media platform without hearing about AI in any flavor. Um, I, I blame ChatGPT. Uh, and I've also had a lot of people kind of hit me up on how do I become a data scientist? And, you know, there's a short answer, right? And there's a long answer. And then there's an answer on how to do it that's written in a book. In a book. In a book written by <laughs> our guest today, an entire book. It's an awesome book. I read parts of it. Um, and uh, it's the kind of guide I wish I had when I made a transition from software engineering into, from, well, I won't just say software engineering, from Silverlight and uh, Windows 8 application development, right? Which is the That's most right. embarrassing thing ever. So welcome to the show, Adam. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so glad to hear uh, to be here. Um, and thanks for the compliments on the book. I'm, you you are one of the few folks who had a chance to see a handful of pages or many of the pages before it launched. So I'm glad you also had some time to look take a look at that. That's cool. Is this your first book or second book or third? Uh, this is the first solo authored book. I have another one that I edited uh, from my previous career. So actually, that's another topic, like changing careers. I had a different career in law. So there's a oh, book out wow. there. Okay. Yeah, if you dig deep enough, you'll find a book on school law that I co-edited. This is my first solo authored book. Nice. Uh, I'm thrilled about it. I have another one coming out in a, on a different topic coming out in September. That one's with the publisher, Kogan Page. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. So you're going to be a multiple book author, which <laughs> um, that's awesome. Um, the the so that's interesting. I didn't know you had transitioned from another career. Uh, yeah. We had met through Lillian Pearson, and most people know the name Lillian Pearson because she was one of the first people who had a number of LinkedIn learning courses or Lynda.com courses. Mm -hmm. if you go back far enough um, on how to how to how to transition into data science or or just on data scientists. Yeah, data science. And she was one of the few for the longest time that was not a mathematician or whatever. So when I, so she, she had this kind of this private mastermind type thing. So we signed, we signed up, we're part of the same cohort and that's how I met Adam. And uh, so, so tell me, tell me, how did you get into the law? And then what was that day? Well, okay, let's, we don't have to, you know, in the virtual green room, <laughs> we talk about lawyers, right? But, um, but um, the, um, what made you decide to leave law? Like, how did you, how did you kind of like start with law and then kind of walk away, like realizing, eh, this isn't for me? Well, I was transitioning into, well, in law, I always worked in education. So, uh, in fact, I went to law school thinking I would work um, as an attorney for a college or university, most likely. Um, and then I did work for college and universities, mostly in administrative roles and policy roles uh, for, for, for many years after law school. Um, and I had a, well, it's an interesting story because 
like many people, sometimes you sort of hit that plateau in your career. Yeah. And I had definitely plateaued in education administration with my law degree. I was in about six years, five, six years, I was runner up five times in national job searches for a new job at a different university. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know you're runner up because when you get invited to interview on campus for most college university jobs, you go for a whole day, sometimes a day and a half or two, and then you either get the job or you don't, and they usually only bring two people to campus. So okay. if you go to campus, you know you're a runner up. Um, and uh, I, I, I got to the point where I realized you know, the the really bookish academic folk were not taking me seriously or as seriously as I really wanted to be here in the job search process because I didn't have a PhD. Mm. And then the law folk weren't taking me as seriously as I really needed them to in order to really advance to that next step in the career because I wasn't then currently working um, as a litigator or as a transactional attorney. Gotcha. So I was sort of in this no man's world uh, plateauing, and that's when I decided to get the PhD. Hmm. And and I, I thought I would get the PhD and go back to education administration, but then be able to get past that that hump, that hurdle, that plateau. Yeah. Um, but during the PhD program, I just got really good at stats. Um, so I just, I ended up teching up, getting getting good at stats, teching up, and becoming a data scientist. And there's a few reasons for that. Um, uh, One of the reasons is I started working on these projects that were predictive analytics. We were mostly looking at ways to anticipate which students would need additional academic support. Um, So we're predicting students who would need the help. And um, which is a great project, by the way, we should totally come back to that if there's time. and then I was telling my friends about this, my family about this, coworkers, of course, knew about this, and everybody started calling me a data scientist. And I'm like, no, 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 right? I deflected because I thought, well, that's like I did. I was I wasn't trained to be a data. I went to law school and had this PhD in education, education leadership. Um, and then eventually, I just sort of acquiesced, and my boss even started calling me the office's data scientist. Um, even though HR didn't call me a data scientist, everybody oh. else was. <laughs> yeah. So finally, I just owned it. And then my first real job, well, what's a real job? What's not a real job? We have to be very careful with that kind of language. But anyway, my first job where the title was data scientist was at a national or nonprofit that helped college university or helped students apply to college university. So again, we were doing, I was doing predictive analytics there, just helping students get to college. The biggest project there was we were looking to figure out um, for the students who started the application process but didn't finish, why? Oh, and wow. then, yeah, and then still it's a predictive problem, right? So you have the students who start the process, how can we predict which students are gonna finish, which students are at risk of not finishing the application process and then intervene to help those students? There's the value in that. Yeah. So that's how I got into data science. I've never looked back, but I've, the point is I've been through a couple different transitions, career transitions. My very first job ever, ever was an English teacher as a foreign language. I was teaching English in Hungary, Budapest, Hungary. And wow. uh, yeah, before the show, I should have mentioned that before the show, because we were talking about international travel and things like that. Yeah. 
So um, that's why I wrote the book, this book. One of the distinguishing factors for this book is it's specifically for, I think it'll be useful for anybody who wants to become a data scientist, but uh, this one was really written for established professionals, folks for whom the, the job search isn't the first rodeo, right? right. You've, you've been through one career, you've done well in one career, and now you're ready for one reason or another for a different career. And if you're choosing data science, this is a really a great book for you. Yeah. Well, it's an interesting topic because we talk to a lot of data people, just, you know, not data scientists, even data engineers, sure. uh, data administrators, data, mm -hmm. data analysts. And of CEOs. course, you know, yeah. So yeah, all, yeah. across the gamut. And what we found is, I, I would say just off the cuff, Frank, more than half didn't start in data. Right. I would say easily more than half. I would say that tends to be the the exception. Yeah. Right? Um, and it, 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 you that leads you to like there's an eclectic bunch of people in data, right? And obviously <laughs> now everybody and their cousin wants to be in this field, right? Like, but sure. but I mean at one point data was not seen as an asset. It was seen as or a liability. We covered that in the previous show, right? Yeah. Um, <laughs> the um, yeah. but. Uh, it was just seen as like, just you got to store stuff. You got to do transactional stuff. Yeah. And I remember, I remember the first time the, the idea, and this, this is going to age me out, I guess, or in terms of age, out my age. Uh, it was 1998, I think it was, or 1999. And there was, um, she was a DBA. That was her official title, but she was actually really good at doing OLAP cubes and analysis and stuff like that. Hmm. And at the time I was, uh, you know, a, a young cocky web developer. And I was like, well, what does that mean exactly? Because, well, I tried to see if, you know, kangaroo breeding patterns in Australia have any impact on, you know, rubber prices in Malaysia or something like that. It was like, <laughs> and I just remember looking at her like, you ever hear something? Like, I saw your eyes light up, right? Like, <laughs> I was like, you ever hear something that, that is, sounds insane? but could also be brilliant and you're not really sure which one it is. That's how I felt. I was like, I was like, huh, that's something. Uh -huh. um, but it was, it was, you know, and then at that time that was, I don't think, and I don't think the business took anything that she did seriously. I think they kind of, it was, it was, it was years before anyone kind of realized this. And the second time I heard anything about this was about Walmart, how if they detect that the weather is going to change over a certain threshold in a particular geographic area, that they'll ship more water, Gatorade, and soda so they can lower the price. Supposedly, this was like 2000, that was 2002. And I was yeah. like, oh, that's clever. And it was just like, yeah, you know, the, the data is already out there. Yeah. And then yeah. uh, just put it to work. Just put it to work, right? And, yeah. and that's clever because it's not exactly proprietary data, right? The weather, uh, sure. anyone can pull the weather data. And, um, it it it's one of those things where when I was reintroduced to the idea of data science, you know, like 14 years later, I was like, oh, wow. So this really has advanced. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, 2002 was one of the points I make in, in this book and the one in September as well. Uh, data science isn't new, um, right, right. but 2002 is also the year where, speaking of Walmart big retailers, where Target uh made headlines for predicting whether their customers were pregnant oh that was and 2002 i thought that, that was, was 
I thought that was a little later. I did not realize no, that. That was also wow. 2002. And for those who don't know those headlines, um, is uh, what where Target really s- sort of let their AI go off the rails is they ended up predicting teenage shoppers um, as pregnant, sending home baby-related coupons. Parents were getting upset about this. And in some cases, they were predicting customers as pr- the is the the urban legend that's built up around 20 years is. But anyway, in some cases, as the urban legend goes, the mythos goes around this story is Target was predicting customers as pregnant before customers knew they were pregnant. Oh, wow. Right. So, yeah, 2002 was uh, oddly enough, it's a turning point. If you go back and map out headlines 2000 mm-hmm. i think people by 2002 people kind of like chilled out over y2k right. and then they were right. <laughs> they were ready to start getting back to value <laughs> well right. there was also the dot-com crash i think the hangover from the dot-com yeah, okay. crash was starting yeah. to clear you know what i mean like okay. and i mean that's that's what i remember mm-hmm. um you know it's just that being in technology you know you know in the late 90s was an awesome place to be after the dot-com crash it was kind of like a lot of people kind of washed out because there was no jobs like i i remember part of why i left uh new york to move to richmond which is how i met andy um was um (laughs) part of it was i mean there would be like one job opening and like 60 to 70 applicants yeah like it was just ridiculous and it was just basically it became like the hunger games to get get a just get a job, like not even like an awesome job or, or a decent one. It was just, and yeah. I remember, you know, just clawing at clawing just to get like, you know, an, uh, a, an interview. And then it became like, you know, it became like a reality show of, you know, like how many rounds of interviews can we force people to go through? Or, you know, that was really, I think the origin of the lead code interview um, was, was that like, I remember one guy gave me a pen and a pencil and said, here, code out, um, code out a program that does this wow like, like by hand yeah like <laughs> i don't have yeah. like a syntax checker i don't have like <laughs> right i don't have intellisense or you know whatever yeah. it is and it was just like you know i did it because you know um i had you know rent that needed to be paid um mm-hmm. but you know and even then like you know that one that took the pull from like 20 people so i was told down to like four and then i still didn't get the job so it became mm-hmm. kind of this 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 but but I mean it was and 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 with all the the downsizing and and layoffs in big tech, you know we're kind of I I don't think it's going to be, who knows right? Um, but I mean there's definitely definitely I think your book comes at a good time because there are a lot Thank of people you. out yeah. there that are yeah. that are probably pondering their next career move, and um, you know data science is a, is an awesome field if you have the, I mean my 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 opinion and I tell people it's like, if you have the stomach for the math. <laughs> yep. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. You know, actually, on that point, one of the pet peeves I see is uh, when somebody says transitioning into data science is easy. Um, it's no, it's not. Uh, it's not easy. It's doable, right? It's doable. Uh, mm-hmm. But I think easy is the wrong adjective there. And then also, there's some posts that say you don't have to know math to transition to data science, which also I think is rubbish. You have to yeah. know math. I think maybe the amount of math you have to know can sometimes be exaggerated. Yeah. Um, but yeah. Uh, yes, spoiler alert, you do have to learn some math if you're going to, you're probably, depend, unless you're an actuarial uh, engineer or a, an actual statistician, 
yeah. to transition to data science, you're going to have to learn some new math. Yeah. And maybe yeah. even in those cases too, come to think of it, because we approach, data scientists approach the statistics different than an actuarial professional, different than an engineer, different than a statistician. That's true. That's true. Yeah. And But you're right. Like, it, and, and when you talk to people, I'm very wary of the become a data science kind of courses that have come out, I'll mm -hmm. say since 2018, right? So when I first made the transition, okay. starting in 2015, there was not a lot of material, right? Actually, it was Lillian. Lillian was one of the few people that was really? not a PhD in mathematics. And, yeah. you know, you're a PhD. I, I would say this, whether you were a PhD or not. PhDs have a very different viewpoint on the world, right? Oh, because yeah. they, they've devoted X number of years to learning a particular discipline, right? Not everyone can or will uh, devote X number of years to to anything, right? Like, um, and all of which to say, when I when I would approach existing data scientists, you know, how did you get it? This is keep in mind, this is uh, some years ago now. Um, you know, they would say, oh, you know, just go back to school. Like this one was one guy. I was at a Microsoft Research Conference, MLADS. We've talked about this show this 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 uh, event it's it's only available to microsoft employees in my opinion um i think part of me wanted to just go back to microsoft after after i personally was laid off just so i can go back to mlads like Interesting. <laughs> it's that wow. good of a conference um but you know the one one guy there who's no longer he's he's actually i don't want to say his name but he he's actually a chief data officer chief data scientist at um i wouldn't call him a startup anymore but it's probably a startup you heard of, and um, but it's probably not the one you're thinking. Just okay. Um, <laughs> <All right. laughs> but um, the um, it's not OpenAI, basically. Like, but, okay. Um, but anyway, oh, so okay. he um, he uh, he's like just turned to me and said, "Oh, yeah, just go back to school. Like, go get a PhD. Like, it was like, oh, just go get a coffee at the local Seven Eleven. You'll be fine. Yeah. Like, like, it doesn't work that way. No. So yeah. so." So, but like in his defense, right? If you look at his kind of his LinkedIn profile, like he's been, you know, he got his undergrad at Harvard. I think he has two multiple, I think he actually now has two PhDs at MIT. Like in his circle of friends, that's like me going to, to, to the local supermarket and picking up a thing of milk, right? Like, I get another it. one, I get it, you know? Yeah. And, and, and so another, another person who was also like a super duper PhD at this conference, she was super chill. Um, she might actually still be a Microsoft, um, uh, said, hey, you know, so I asked her, I was like, you know, what should I do? And he goes, she's like, well, take a few courses in it, particularly statistics. If you like it, then your passion for it will we'll, we'll, we'll finish the job. Like, it'll take you over. You'll find everything else you need. That's if you hate, advice. it really was. It was you like, like it was for, for me, it was life-changing. And she's like, yeah. and if you hate it, well ask yourself this question she was also from europe right so they they have a different work-life okay. uh, philosophy there she's like and if you hate it ask yourself the question do you really want to do something you hate mm -hmm. and i kind of walked away from that and i was like you know that's interesting and um so that was that i mean that 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 was sage advice and it turns out that you know uh there were parts of statistics that 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 i really like probably because i'm a you know, historically, I've been a lot, big baseball fan, uh, and there's parts okay. that I really, I really don't like. And, <laughs> but that's like anything, right? You know, you, you, if they have to pay you to show up, yeah, there's right. a catch. And, um, but you're right. So, so when people ask me now, I have a book I can recommend them, right? Like, but, 
uh, to, to if they want tradition in data science, they'll ask me like, what should I do? And I was like, well, you really should study st stats because that's probably about 80% of the lift right there. Sure. Yeah. I, I think I agree with that. Yep. And I would say 15% is calculus and the remainder is probably game theory and linear algebra would be kind of how I break it down. Yeah. I would add, mm -hmm. uh, and actually in the book, uh, I, uh, on the advice of a fellow data scientist that I know who works for a big, big engineering firm that's over 100 years old based in Minnesota. You probably figure out what that one is. Play this game now. <laughs> We're going to allude to company. Uh, he's a data scientist there. He really encouraged me to add a section on contributing to sales and business savvy. Oh, wow. Right, for yes. this book, yeah. Um, and, and I see that as a mistake that some folks trying to make that transition from some fields, not all, but, but more the bookish fields, like the academic folks transitioning yeah. into data science. Um, there's a, there's a, there's a diminutive association associated with doing sales. Right? I would, I, I would say, I would say it's a flat out stigma. Yeah, you know, it's a stigma. It that's is, a better word. Yep, yeah. It's a flat out, and I, I, I actually just came up the other day in my day job, is that, you know, somebody who is a very talented engineer uh, he he's wanting to learn to pitch like in how to do sales okay and like i think i, I don't want to put thoughts in his head or words in his mouth but i suspect that that he comes from that background where yeah. he was very hesitant to do that because and yeah. i kind of had my revelation with this like it is it is a process right and 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 you know, Andy and I have talked about the number of sales gurus that we've that we've listened to. I, I can recommend Grant Cardone. He is an acquired taste. I'll put that right okay. out there. Right. <laughs> uh, I mean, the, the, to put it in context, I first heard of this guy. If anyone can remember Meerkat, Meerkat was an application um, that was the live streaming application. I think it came out during a South by Southwest. It was the first like live streaming thing you could do on your phone now everybody can do it right yeah. but he was like the number one meerkat meerkatter meerkat i don't know he was the number <laughs> one user of it and like i installed the app and i remember because i had just given up on windows phone right and i got an iphone so i can actually install real apps and meerkat was one of the first things <laughs> i installed and i kept seeing these notifications on like grant cardone is doing this and every time i tune in it was basically him you know, talking about sales and stuff, being very salesy, right? Yeah. And, and, and at the time, I thought of that as a pejorative. Um, yeah. And it's easy to think that way. It is easy to think that way. And yeah. I find myself being a sales apologist internally, like a lot. Like, <laughs> like you know, they'd be like, oh, salespeople have no attention, no attention span. I'm like, no, that's not true. They have no attention span because if they, and, and it's about, you know, getting other non-salespeople to empathize with them, right? As, as much as I loathe the word empathy and there's a whole story attached to that, the feeling of empathy is awesome. The way that has been mutated and used okay. in this empathy industrial complex is what I have the problem with. Okay. Um, <laughs> but that's a, that's a rant for another day. Okay. Um, <laughs> but um, the, um, the, 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 you know, I just basically say like, you know, if, if, if you're not, in sales, you don't understand what it is. Like if you don't sell, you don't close, your kids don't eat. Like it is really, it really is that type of thing. And you see all the braggadociousness and all kind of the, the, the hoopla around it. A lot of that is masking a lot of deep seated insecurities 
So you have to kind of, but if you ever want to get a salesperson's attention, show them how you're going to, you're going to help them make their quota, right? Make their money. Right. Yeah, and I've yeah. kind of done a lot of work in, you know, with, with kind of like, you know, oh, they have no attention span. That's not true. They have no patience for nonsense. Right. And that nonsense is kind of like, you know, what you think is an engineer is cool. I catch myself doing this all the time. Right. Cause I'm a sales engineer. Right. Where I'll be like, oh, that's really cool. And I kind of have to pull myself back. Thankfully, with the help of, you know, my, my manager's kind of mentoring on that. He goes, he always tells me, do this. Anything you do, do through a lens of sales. Yeah. Right? So I always have to kind of pull myself back and like, okay, yes, that is a cool tech, but how do we use it to sell and solve the solution yeah. for customer? Right. Yeah. That's a hard thing to do. Um, and I don't remember how we ended up in this rabbit hole, but I think it's, I think that's a good addition to your book because yeah. if nothing else, if you're changing careers, particularly people who are changing careers, they need to sell the hiring manager on, why should I pick you? Yeah. Like, why well, can't I, I get Johnny or Janie or, you know, Bob mm -hmm. or Barbara who, who, who have been doing data stuff for years? Yeah. Why should I pick you? Like you're, yeah. you, you were, um, I don't know, uh, a lawyer. A lawyer, right? Like, why should or I pick you? Were you? A, you were in marketing, or you were in right. public relations, or you were a teacher, or you were what, right? Well, the yeah. advice I give in the book is, the very least, you want to demonstrate an awareness of, appreciation for, and a knowledge of how the company uh, makes money. Yes. Right. And if you're and 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 um and how data science can contribute to that bottom line. And I also speak a little bit about nonprofits in that section too, because there we're not taught, we're not worried about profits, but we, but nonprofits have revenue. Yeah. So how can data scientists contribute to the revenue? Um, and uh, one of the thing, one of the specific use cases that I'm loving recently, um, I didn't do talk about this in the book. Um, one of the specific use cases I'm just loving recently is using data science to um, hone or refine, basically predict the best ask of a potential donor. So d development professionals, yeah, fundraiser professionals, they'll have their database of potential donors. We can use data science to estimate what's the best ask for that donor. Interesting. Interesting. And you could, and it's a classification problem because there's different kinds of asks. Right. Yeah. Some people want to do estate giving. Some people want to just give a one time check and then move on. Some people want to make pledges for 10 years. Uh, so that's a classification problem. And then it's also a regression problem because you have to pick a number. Right. So anyway, if you're if you're getting for an interview, getting ready for an interview, that's the level of granularity you need to bring to the interview. You have to make specific suggestions as to how data science can contribute to the company's revenue or bottom line or both. Yeah, that's good advice no. in any technical interview. Sure. You know, I mean, really, you you definitely want to you definitely want to know how the company makes money. And then you want to know as much as you can about how the department you're applying to contributes to that. Yeah. And then you can pitch if you're, you're doing what Frank says, you're going to go pitch yourself for that role and talk about ideas that you may have. You definitely don't want to give away. Yeah. Uh, you know, give away the farm on on any of that. There's an old data joke um, where in the first frame, the uh, the the uh, interviewer is asking, um, "Do you know? Uh, can you tell me how a deadlock works?" And the interviewee says, "If you hire me, I will." <laughs> <laughs> and awesome. they just sort of demonstrated a deadlock right there. Okay, um, that's a good one. <laughs> That's a good one. Uh, I like that one. Very meta. Very meta. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, 
You know, Frank, you were talking about uh, the advice, just go to school, just get a degree like you can get coffee. I have a whole chapter on that where um, I the the subtext is. um, uh, Well, actually, no, maybe it's not. Maybe it's more overt in that chapter. Now that I think about it, it's really going through the decision process associated with another degree, a certificate or or self-study or a combination um it the the solution to that is different for every every person um is going to have their own path there's no right or wrong way to make the transition that's true and 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 it's one of those things where part of part of the way through my transition there was a uh, youtube video i forget who it was it's not like a famous youtuber or anything like that but but she's basically had this thing where you know how i transitioned in six months it's like a TED talk or TEDx talk or something like that. And like, it was like, oh, so it is possible to do it, but do it mm-hmm. at speed. It's not easy, but you know, yeah. uh, um, it is doable. Yeah. And doable. that's the thing, like, you know, I think people who, I'm sorry, uh, cut no, you off. Yeah. No, no, no I no. think people, people t- will sell snake oil. Oh, you don't need to learn math. Like, eh. and I so would, crazy. I would. I would be kind of like, I would go a little bit too far the other way, maybe. Like, I think, uh, I don't know how many certifications I got that first year. I think it was like 13 or 14, some odd. Wow. Thank you. Um, And because I just went like full on and it was just kind of like, and I'm like, I will read research papers, even though I didn't really have to. Yeah. Right. Just because like, I knew I would be occasionally, and I would tell, I would tell, you know, this is when I was at Microsoft, you know, it comes in handy now too. Um, you know, I may be in the room with mathematicians or hardcore data scientists. You know what I mean? Like there's different, my, my sons play this video game and like, there's like different classes of characters, right? Like it's kind of like as Dungeons and Dragons from back in the day, right? You had a, <laughs> was a mage, a warrior, an elk, an, an elk, an elf, and then like a couple other things. Okay. But like, there's different classifications of data scientists. You know what I'm talking yeah. about, right? Like, yeah. you know, there's the PhD ones, like the super heavy math people. And then there's kind of like different levels of, you know, well, they were a data engineer. Now they kind of, now they're this, or they used to be a developer. Now they're this, like there's different types of ones. And like, I would always say like the, the ones that always carry the most weight in a particular customer account would probably then be the math heavy ones. And I would always like read the crazy math and get into that, you know, as, as long as my, as, as far as my little brain would take me, right. Sure. Not because, because I would say like, you know, I would say like, look, I, I know I'm not going to go toe to toe with these people, but if I can step in the ring, I'll lose. That's fine. But at least I look like I belong there. And I think you earn a lot of the respect yeah. that way. And yeah. sometimes I think, I think that's good advice for career stuff too. Like, Absolutely. you know, train hard, study hard. You may not win the fight, right? It's not, life's not a Rocky movie, right? But yeah. the fact that you, you can be in there and look like you belong there yeah. is half yeah. the battle. I was working with a career coaching client who was comparing themselves to Sebastian Rashka who um, is, now he's the kind of data scientist who is inventing new math, right? Oh, wow. Like he's like, he's, if you don't know Sebastian Raska, several books, mm. professor at University of Wisconsin, where I teach also, um, but he's inventing new math. And I said, hold the phone. Um, Sebastian Raska is a different kind of data scientist. He's inventing new math. You don't need to be able to invent new math to be a data scientist. And in right. fact, in fact, if you're inventing new math, you're probably going to be less well positioned in many ways to offer value 
because the new math is untested. The new math mm. hasn't been productized. The new math isn't ready for market. What's ready for market, what's been tested and what's been productized is good old logistic regression, uh, K-nearest neighbors, those support vector machines. Those are the, that's what brings value because we well, know the methods. We, we've tested them. Right. And people like him are going to be bored out of their skull on your average job. Oh, yeah, yeah. He wouldn't okay. want, yeah, I would agree with you. Actually, now, I, actually, Nick, I want to see him and be like, hey, have you ever just thought about being a K-nearest neighbors engineer? Like, calling it a day. <laughs> You're trying to, trying to get smacked on top of the head. <laughs> that would be hilarious. Like, you know. But I mean, but I mean, uh, you know, one of the things is, and it wasn't in the chapter I read, but but one of the things that I think is a huge problem in technology jobs overall, not just data science, although I think it's it's writ large now in data science now sure. that it's the new hotness, the job requirements and the job descriptions. So weird. That's a that's a topic. I, I got it. Where are you going with this one? Because this. No, is no. Like, topic. I mean, like, so, so here's a here, here's a good example. Right. And I, yeah. I don't know if you've heard this one before. But I want to see the look on your face, you know, okay. when, when you hear it. I got a call from a recruiter some couple of years ago that they wanted a full stack data scientist. Okay. And that the was pay, kind of a new word a few years ago. Well, I think the impression was, and I, I, I kind of pulled the thread on the head recruiter, mostly out of curiosity, not because I had any interest. But it was like, well, when they say like full stack data scientist, like that could mean at least one of two things, probably more. But yeah. I took that as one. You take you you handle the data from ingestion all the way to pushing the model of production, which sounds reasonable, I think, um, ish reasonable ish. I see Andy. I'm not shaking my head. Reasonable ish. Not not a no, scalable model, a, but well, yeah. if it's a seven figure salary, okay, then it's okay, reasonable, sure. right? Because you're doing um, eight jobs. Well, also, data science is a team sport. It so is a team sport. I'm skeptical yes. of I'm skeptical of that, but maybe you could make it work for a little while. But apparently they wanted someone who would be able to develop the, like they meant full stack developer plus data scientist. Yeah. Oh my goodness. That's two Which, jobs. Uh, at, at least. least. At least. Yeah. 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 Which yeah. I was kind of like, really, you want that? And, and I look at job requirements and this is, this is, this is uh, pressing on my mind because we're, we're, you know, my team probably next calendar year will, will end up hiring for people, but you know, we're kind of like, well, what do we want? We obviously need someone who knows OpenShift, obviously, uh, but we also want someone who's a data science or data engineering background. And also, that's kind of a, if you draw that Venn diagram, it's a very small subset of people. So it's kind of like yeah. we had this kind of this philosophy of, well, you know, we, I thought about extreme examples. So, you know, you take somebody like, you know, um, like that uh, professor who's, a, who's inventing new that's math. Like, right. he, he'd be bored out of his mind. Yeah, like you know, in, in a job like this. No offense to 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 what what I do, right? Like, but if you pour out of to be clear, or, you, or anyone on this call, clients, right? Like, right, I'm not right. inventing new math, right? So they'd be bored out of their mind. It wouldn't be a challenge. So, like, you know, th there's and this is the same problem I saw like in the early days of the web, where you went from where there was a webmaster who did everything to then it kind of broke out into specialties. Yeah, but yeah. but I don't. But the same problem exists from even before the internet. You know, imagine those days. Um, but, uh, <laughs> the job requirements are always just like, intense. you know, really intense. This is a longstanding problem in IT, uh, maybe the other fields too, but, but what are your thoughts on that? And like, you know, and that particularly can be intimidating for career transitioners, right? Like, 
I'm thinking, you know, well, you're a baseball fan. You told me that earlier yeah. on the show. Um, could you imagine a full stack midfielder? That's a joke. Right? It just doesn't exist, right? right. Or, or what about like a full field midfielder? Like there's like that position doesn't right. exist. Data right. science is a team sport. You need to field a team as an organization, you need to feel the team to um, implement data scientists or data science work. Uh, that's just the way that's the way the world works, in my view. And maybe that feels extreme to some listeners, but um, I'm skeptical of now. I'm not skeptical of the notion of a full stack data scientist. I think a full stack data scientist can function really well on a team. Right. So maybe there's a data scientist whose job it is to know a little bit of all of the team components and maybe even has a little bit of experience in all of the team components. But there's also a data scientist. There's also a database engineer. There's also a software engineer. Um, and then and if you're thinking about more of the phases, there's someone in charge of, of extracting, collecting, cleaning, preparing data. There's someone in charge of modeling um refining testing and then there's someone else in charge of putting into production and then don't forget you need someone else in charge of of grooming the work to make sure the models don't decay right, right. so mm. like i said i i guess maybe my thoughts are, are i'm not skeptical of the notion of a full stack data scientist but i think a full stack data scientist in a vacuum is not a strategy for success mm. Right, right. It's totally not scalable. And and yeah. what they were like, they ended up, the recruiter actually shared with me at the pond, like, no, we, we're having trouble finding somebody. So is the custom, you know, so is the end client. And I'm like, huh, no kidding. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and like, and I don't want to bag on tech recruiters because I think they have gotten better. But like, I remember well, hearing, it's a tough job. And and my, yeah. my neighbor is actually a, a tech recruiter and, and, you know, HR people, I'm going to I'm going to play this, the the generalization game but but it's okay I have some stats to back me up. Okay. Um you know <laughs> IT people tend not to be the most gregarious human beings in the world, right? What? That's not crazy, that's right? crazy talk. Um they tend <laughs> not to be, right? I'm not saying it's impossible, but you know, but and HR people tend to be they don't know how to re interact I think at, at at scale yet, like how to interact with IT people. So how do you get you know, and, and I think combined with like these ridiculous tech requirements, you know, or or prereqs, right? Like, you know, you have to know this, you have to know that, you have to know that, you know. And if you kind of pull the thread at any of those, like, well, does your company do that? No, we don't have any of that that technology. Well, why are you asking for it? You know, like it just it becomes this kind of it becomes a game, and it's it's mm -hmm. it. I'm not really sure who's winning at said game, but yeah. It's not the average kind of, you know, applicant in, in IT, yeah. right? right? I don't know. Yeah. Like, I just, you know, uh, but I mean, like, is there any advice in the, what advice would you give uh, or, or is in the book that to, if I'm a career transitioner and, you know, a, and the job requirements is they have to have nine to 10 years of experience in, you know, working in IT, right? And I'm, my, my background is, say, marketing, right? Yeah. Like, what, what would your advice be? Well, that is one of the, the the tougher things to really suss out for transitioners. Um, and one of the things you can do is um, a, a job description might be specific and say, so for data science, job description say, I want, the company wants five years 
of of experience yeah. or the job description might say i want the employer wants five years of experience in data science and some uh some recruiters job description writers are intentionally writing the former they're just saying five years of experience knowing that people uh they're also open to folks transitioning into the field so like well let's take well let's take lillian for example right so if i was advising lillian and back when she was first transitioning into data science i think i know enough about her, her resume i would say you're going to apply for jobs that ask for up to 10 years of experience period because she had about 10 years of experience as an engineer right, right? And then you're going to you're going to tread more cautiously on job descriptions that say they want specific experience in data science. And then that's one of your research tasks on 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 informational interviews. Right. A lot of there's sort of a lot of um, sort of non-specific advice on information interviews. But one of the really high value questions to ask in an inter informational interview is uh, this question. When your company makes a job description and says uh, uh, X number of years of experience, are they typically looking for X number of years of experience in that specific role or X number of years of experience in general? And and sometimes that can that can be really consistent across an entire organization. Sometimes, yeah. depending on the branch of the organization, it can differ. But that is one of the most high value questions you can ask in an inter informational interview. It will give you intelligence that will inform your job application decision making process in really important ways. Interesting. That's a really good point. And I, I I love where we're I love where we're going. I love everything we've covered. I know um, I have as to make up for uh, being late. I have a hard stop. So uh, <laughs> yeah, and we have we have these questions that we like to ask every yeah, guest, let's run Adam. And I'm gonna kind of questions. pivot into that. Um, I'll start with the first one. How did you find your way uh, into data? And I think you partially answered this at yeah. least. Did data find you, or did you find data? Yeah, it, I think data, initially data was finding me. I just had jobs at work that re called for data science. So I did data science. I solved the problem that was ahead of me, in front of me, even though I wasn't a data scientist. And then eventually I decided, oh, this data science thing is a thing for me. I decided to become more intentional about it. Yeah, that's how that's that was my path. Good answer. That's cool. All right, so what's your second question is, what's your favorite part of your current gig? But so first, right, what is your current gig? Because you, you okay. mentioned in the virtual green room, you travel, you teach. What what do you consider your gig? Uh, and what's your favorite coach. part? Primarily, okay. I'm a career coach. I help mid and late career professionals, folks who were like me when I transitioned to data science, uh, transition into data science. So folks nice. who have already been successful in at least one other career, um, and now they're ready to come into data science. Uh, and that's why I wrote this book, How to Become a Data Scientist, a guide for established professionals. Um, I know you have another question coming up. What, what, when I'm not at work, what do I enjoy doing? That would be teaching. So I mentioned, actually, even on the show, I mentioned uh, I work at University of Wisconsin, teaching statistics, data management, and then every once in a while do a semester of education law because they really, really need help with that. Um, hard to find, as you can imagine, people to teach that niche. Um, 
and it was since it was my former career I say yeah I can do that um so uh I stay really fresh that's one of the ways I stay really fresh is by teaching statistics data management uh to grad students University of Wisconsin so that's one of the things I do when I enjoy when I'm when I'm I do for enjoyment when I'm not working um, in data science or as a career coach. That's interesting. So have you seen with the rise of all uh, of these technology, have you seen more interest in that space? Absolutely. And the students uh, are are really asking. They are because uh, they know I became a data scientist and they know my right. full time work is data science and career coaching. Um, so maybe it's a function of that. But I. I've, I was getting those kind of questions before I was a full-time coach um, too. Uh, yeah, students know, they just know. They're in grad school and they know that acad academia is not necessarily what it used to be. And they wanna know how to get into data science. So I'm spending a lot of time right now talking with folks on campus. How can we bring some of the more relevant uh, skills to the classroom, for example, um, on college campuses, we spend a lot of time teaching Stata, which, if you don't know, is a fantastic software, but it's really niched into economics or camp college university campuses. So how can we continue our honoring our heritage with Stata, uh, which again, great software, but also expose students more to R and Python? For example, this is one of the many examples. Interesting, interesting. I had not heard of Stata in like five years. You're the first person to mention oh, yeah. it in like five I, years. It is. I I still use it daily. I like uh, I'll have Stata here and Python there, and I go back and forth. Oh, nice. <laughs> yeah. Very nice. Well, you answered two of the questions that okay. we uh, that we had there together. I just I wanted to ask another question uh, since we, you've um, you've taken one out. The um, uh, one of the popular speakers in the Microsoft uh, data circuit, probably 10, 12 years ago, was uh, David DeWitt. Okay. And I understand he was at University of Wisconsin, at least uh, Madison, I think it was. Yep, that's right. Uh, sorry, right I take that. Well, take that back. No, yeah, he was a teacher there, Wisconsin Madison. Okay. And uh, just I pulled up Wikipedia while you were chatting. He was, uh, he started the Wisconsin database group, it says, but it needs a citation for that. And it says here he's, he moved to MIT. I didn't know that. He was still at U of uh, W when he spoke at the uh, the largest data Microsoft data conference on the planet. It's called um, the PASS Summit. It happens in uh, Seattle every year. And he did the keynote out there a few years and just blew everybody's mind talking about database theory. And some of that. I'm just curious if you ran into him out there or if he if he's left, probably no one knows. Knows I haven't. Um, I'm going to have to add him to my list of folks to try and connect with. Um, the uh, yeah, the current. Well, now, as soon as I name one person, the people I leave out are going to be really disappointed. <laughs> but, you know, it's not for what it's worth. Maybe this is just a chance for me to plug Go Badgers, Big Ten, University of Wisconsin Madison. Um, I mean, one of I had statistics with a former member of the White House Council of Economic Advisors as my professor at wow. Wisconsin, right? So that's a big deal, right? And, yeah. and you can say similar things about other professors teaching stats at other important schools. Um, but it, it surprises me uh, not at all that a superstar like David DeWitt was at Wisconsin. 
Yep. Yep. Cool. Okay. I'll, uh, I'm going to jump back into our questions okay. here. So another complete this uh, sentence is I think the coolest thing in tech today is blank. Coolest thing in tech today is, oof, this is a tough one because there's so many choices. I have analysis paralysis and decision paralysis on this one. <laughs> um, I, You know what? Can we, I'm still, can we come back to this one? Sure. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Let's come back to that one. Well, we have been getting feedback that, uh, you know, we should mix up the questions a bit. So uh, we're doing that re here in real time. Sure. Uh, <laughs> so I'll skip to, I look forward to the day when I can use technology to blank. Do nothing. I look forward to the day where I can completely unplug. Um, I, I won't have to worry about email anymore. I won't have to worry about text messages anymore. I won't have to worry about social media notifications anymore. I look forward to the day where I can completely get away from technology. Um, I mean, it has been my livelihood now for many years. Um, and I'm grateful for the livelihood that technology has provided me. Um, and I will be happy in tech career probably for the rest of my professional life. Um, but I also do uh, uh, look forward to the day where I can unplug. So maybe there's a contrarian answer. Um, I'd be interested if anybody else has given a similar answer on the show. Kind of. I think uh, a lot of it has been around automation, around so they could yeah. do more things they would okay. enjoy. Although the idea of an Adam GPT bot that you could email back and forth with and converse with, that would be pretty cool, actually. That could be cool. I think so. Um, all right, Andy, you want to take the next one? Yeah, I can do that. Um, or whichever. We, yeah, we'll uh, we'll go to share something different about yourself, but we remind every guest that it's a family <laughs> podcast. Family yes. show, yeah. Yeah. I um so my first job, uh, full time uh, uh, adult job um, after high school, but before college, believe it or not, was teacher of English as a foreign language in Budapest, Hungary. And I really like telling this story because um, from then on, it was in the late 90s, um, a little bit older than I look, it, um, it was in the late 90s and um, getting that foundation of managing a classroom, planning, you're planning the fates of other people in this constrained way because you're in charge yeah. of what they're learning. They're in charge of what they're learning too. It's a collaborative thing. Um, huge professional development opportunity for someone in their late teens, which is what I was uh, when I did that. One more, uh, here's a fun one. I also was, I, I did a short stint as a professional speaker for Mothers Against Drunk Driving. Really? So, Interesting, yeah, okay. I, yep, I was the guy who came to your high school. I did middle schools too. We had a different show for middle schools, different talk for middle schools. But I was the guy who came to your show, talked about healthy decisions, um, a little bit of some life planning, a little bit of relationship stuff. Um, believe it or not, we didn't touch so much on drugs and alcohol. We talked more about general wellness. And yeah. then for um, the middle schoolers, we really were in the wellness, in the wellness uh, topics um, to be more age appropriate for the middle schoolers. I yeah. spoke to tens of thousands of students at hundreds of schools in that, wow. in that roughly year I was with them. So wow. you were doing coaching even then? Yeah, in a way, yeah. uh, although I was doing group coaching sessions for, uh, I think the smallest group was maybe 50 students at a small yeah. school, you know, my largest audience, I think it was the, um, 
oh god what was the name of this national it was a national association meeting of one of the one of the high school um oh gosh what was i can't remember the name anyway there were like six thousand students in this convention hall so that was my largest audience ever um that i didn't draw them to the let's be clear i didn't draw them to the convention center mothers against driving did but that was also a really powerful experience. I, I really Excellent. enjoyed the time speaking, being a professional speaker. Very cool. That's cool. Yeah. yeah. All right. So we're going to check in on that background thread. Have you uh, thought about what the coolest thing in technology is? You know, I'm going to go with the low-hanging fruit. I'm really trying not to do this, but I got to go with generative AI. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's, it's uh, really prescient right now um it's pervading everyone's thoughts um the coolest thing in technology right now could i also give you the most worrying worrisome thing in technology is related it's all of the folks who are resisting generative ai um just absolutely uh gosh i i i just uh uh i i'm i'm it, I'm worried that folks are going to resist generative AI in a way that's going to inhibit our ability to adopt AI in thoughtful, humanistic, productive, ethical ways. I'm really worried that that's going to get in the way. Yeah, uh, the knee-jerk reactions have been interesting. And, and and to be clear, like, it's really around the, the text generation, right? Like, for, yeah. You know, the, the art generation stuff, you know, there were some dust ups because it won, I think, the Colorado State Fair. Right. But but nobody flipped the bleep out. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and the reason why we we choose the family friendly thing is because I listen to podcasts with my kids in the car. I'm assuming others will, too. Sure. So that's why. So they, they literally lost everybody lost their lid when, yeah. you know, when 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 the text generation. I thought that that says something interesting about kind of how we communicate as human beings personally mm-hmm. um yeah obviously people have been kind of you know biting their fingernails over deep fakes and stuff but you're right like you know the knee-jerk reaction of the new york city public school system and again on another rant soapbox i could go on <laughs> would be the new york city public education system as a yeah. as a i wouldn't say an alum because i didn't graduate from there because i went to a different school but um you know for them to ban it was was kind of I understand the reasoning is kind of over overstepping, right? It's kind of like yeah. if I if yeah. I have a mosquito on my arm, I, I I I slap it away. I don't get a mallet or a hammer and just start smacking my 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 yeah. my my arm. Um, that's kind of what it was. I think Italy now is is trying to ban it. I think banning things is one should really be the option of last resort. Yeah, uh, because I mean, just look around you like, you know, there are a lot of things that are banned, you know, specifically illicit narcotics. Yeah. I wouldn't say they're easy to get, but you can still get them. Yeah. <laughs> well, what I you know what I think about when I hear stories like that, especially yeah. of the of the banning stuff, I'll, I'll I'm I'm 59. I'll be 60 in three months. And That's so when I went to uh, went to high school, calculators weren't new. We were about a generation. Yeah, we were a generation beyond the, the the ones that were that did that, or a fraction of that work, and they were huge. Um, and we didn't have, as far as we didn't have graphing calculators at that time. They did show up when I was in in college, um, but I went to college about ten years after I graduated, so we had graphing calculators then. 
but that, that's what I think about it. The teachers would, you know, they, it's an old joke. It's all over social media, but it's true. They would say, you know, in calculus class, the teacher would allow us to do lighter tests with the calculators. Once, once he knew, we understood the principles. But before then, it was by hand. Mm-hmm. I learned how to use a slide rule, but not really well. I just, it was kind of like, here's a slide rule, and this is how we used to use them. And, you know, you watch that scene in Apollo 13, where he's checking, everybody's checking the calculations, and they're all doing the slide rule stuff. So I don't remember how to do slide rules. I didn't do it enough. But the teacher would ask that question. Are you going to have a calculator with you the rest of your life? And I'm like, you know, now the joke is. I am going to have a calculator. And a a television studio. (laughs) You know, it's so. And I wonder how much of it is kind of down that that same vein. And I'm not against that. I mean, um, you know, I I want people to be able to. to do the math, <laughs> you know, it's as much as you can, because there's something about putting a pencil to the piece of paper and walking through the exercise. And, and I'll just, I'll just say this, even though I can't do it, I'll just say this, that, you know, typing six letters into Excel with an equal sign in front of it, hitting the begin paren and having it pop up the parameters is not the same thing. And, you know, we're, we're living in an age, and I don't want to, I'm not going to say, I'm not going to clarify what I'm about to say. I'm going to be intentionally vague here. But we're living in an age where things may go away. That's not, you know, it's more a distinct possibility than it was 10 years ago. And so what if, you know, what if we lose the ability to do uh, some tech or we lose it for a while? You know, math is still going to be a thing that we need to do. So yeah. I, I agree with the intention. And I'll say it this way. I respect the intention. That's a better way to say it. Um, And and especially when it comes to to that, I'm and having spoken to parents, we talked in the, uh, you know, the electronic green room about all all the kids and grandchildren I have the, uh, you know, I can get it as, as that point. I'm but being a data engineer, I don't I don't quite connect all of the dots to banning. The uh, the AI stuff. I don't I don't get it. I understand the fear. I, I get that part of it, and I think some of it is is justified. Maybe more than people are um, you know willing to give it credit for. And I, I'm I'm about to order a T-shirt that says I need new conspiracy theories because my yeah. own have all come true. Is yeah, that from is that from the Y files? Uh, no, I don't think that. I think it's a it's a um, it's a reporter online. I'm trying to remember oh, which okay. one, but yeah, that's that's a that's a cool uh, cool t- um, t-shirt that I need to get as well. But anyway, it's just you know I'll I'll stop. I'll I could ramble, but I'll stop. Well, I wanted to say your experience is uh, the, the, there's a story behind your story. The story mm-hmm. behind your story is that event. Yeah, calculators were a controversy when they first became available. Um, but now calculators are integrated into the curriculum. Right. Right. So so I think about this because the PhD, again, is in education policy. Right. Um, and policy is pedagogy or pedagogy, depending on how you want to. Right. But anyway, um, it, it, eventually, eventually it's inevitable. Generative AI will have to be integrated into the cur- curriculum. Yeah. Um, and there were districts that banned graphing calculators. Yeah. Yes, that that's was, right. 
there were schools and districts that banned graphing calculators just the way generative AI is now banned in some districts. Yeah. It will pass. Hopefully it will pass. Yeah. No, I, I can see that. And I think that there's, I think that one of the things um, that I learned when I was doing tech policy, and for those not outside of the beltway, when we say policy, we're kind of mean lobbying, kind of. Okay. Yeah. Don't we? Would you agree with that, Adam? Kind of. Yeah. Well, there's different flavors in the DMV area, but right. I get it when you say policy and lobbying. You're 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 working to influence statute and um, administrative regulations and funding and granting from all of the science foundations, etc. Yeah. Right. It's kind of it's not exactly the same thing, but it's in that same orbit, right? Okay. Like, so yeah. I, I would say, like, I, I certainly the 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 food options in the lobbying uh, uh, world are much better than than anywhere else I've ever worked. But <laughs> um, but that's a story for another show. Um, but yeah, so but I mean, this is kind of like just something that you only really see around, largely around DC, probably other state capitals and stuff like that. But when we, I, the other thing I want to point out is I mentioned the Y files. The Y files is a funny uh, YouTube channel. And yes. you have to check it. It's hilarious. Like they, 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 the hecklefish is kind of this talking goldfish, which I realize as I say that out loud, you have to see it. You have to see it. And and there's so, like a tinfoil hat on the on on the on on the on the fishbowl. Right. It, it just it's just funny. And like he, the fact that he talks is act. He's he. I guess a the the host is from New York or whatever. But like the way that the fish talks sounds exactly like my relatives who who lived in Queens, New York, sounded. Yeah. So he's like, so ah. under, I, I had meetings. I, I jumped in late because I had a meeting run long and I'm wearing my consulting costume. This is what I said. But underneath this, there is a crab cat, a fear of the crab cat T-shirt with a diagram of a crab cat. That is a Y-Files merch uh, shirt. Uh, okay. And you can check it out on uh, on YouTube. And it's kind of a play on the X-Files. They do fringy stuff. And what's really interesting about it, though, is he's the, the host lists. He does his research. And he starts with a bunch of things about some conspiracy theory type thing. And he kind of plays through the conspiracy theory from the conspiracy theorist's standpoint. And but he does, he does a measured segment. response. He does a right. measured and, response. And yeah. he does at the end, he does like a debunk. And what's interesting about it is sometimes it's just that. But then other times he'll get to the end of it and he'll say, you know, I can debunk all of this. But I get to this piece and I can't. And and then other times he'll get to that and he'll say, and it changed my mind. I don't now I don't know. And it's he's a first off, he's an interesting character. Um are you watching it? Did, <laughs> no, but oh. I, I I am Googling for it while you're telling me about it. This oh, is okay. Yeah, this is great. I also found a data visualization product called Y Files. Oh, interesting. Yeah, so check that out. But now we gotta check, check that, that out. out too. Yeah. But so I always the, love Hecklefish. Hecklefish people. is awesome. Listen, people. <laughs> free free shout out there to Wi Files. Not a sponsor, but maybe no, one no. day will be. Um, I'm going to throw this in because we keep forgetting it. Um, where can people learn more about you, Adam, and the work that you do? So, LinkedIn and Twitter are my most active social media platforms. Please connect with me if you. Yeah, I would love to. Yeah. Uh, I um, and the listeners love connecting with new people. Um, 
the uh, book is available. How to Become a Data Scientist is available yep. on Amazon, Barnes and Noble, pretty much wherever books are sold. There's an ebook, a hardcover, a paperback. Nice. Um, and then there's another book coming out in September, which I encourage folks to pre-order. You can get that on Amazon. It's called Confident Data Science nice. by okay. uh, Adam Ross Nelson. Confident Data Science is a tech book. It's cool. okay. top code. But the interesting thing about that book is, oh, you know what? If you'll have me, well, I should come back and talk about that book too once it comes out. We should set that up. That would yeah, be awesome. Yeah, it it covers the history of the field, the philosophy of, of the field. The there's a I I hit ethics really hard in that book. Nice. And I nice. hit culture really hard in that book. Um, so even though it's a technical book, um, I hit those non-tech aspects really hard because I don't know any other tech book that does that. You can't separate them. I mean, you nope. can't. If you're talking to you an LLM, right? Mm -hmm. And and I see, you know, I I keep up with a, I keep up with some of the stuff around culture, especially. Okay. And I see that the first thing I saw was the thing about bias, and I can't remember that guy's name. I have to. I, I gifted Frank uh, a, a subscription to his Substack. and he wrote about that and how it slants. It's it's not skewed, you know. It's not. Went, but he's he's doing a vertical chart on it. He definitely sees a slant in there. And the way he approached it, which I thought was fair, is that this is a reflection of us. So mm -hmm. when people talk, yeah. I, I was here 20 years ago when the internet came out. Oh, there's all of this bad stuff on the internet. Right. And I'm like, it's us, people. You're looking at us. At yourself. Wow. I the, don't reminds me of that South Park episode. The inner the internet didn't invent it. Go ahead, South Park episode. No, where they 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 see the architect of Walmart. <laughs> you ever see that one? I don't know this one. Oh, it's a, it's a it's a play on the Matrix, and basically yes. okay. Walmart. Ergo, Air <laughs> Yeah, and it was uh, and the uh, the Walmart uh, becomes like this self sentient like thing that takes over all the town and stuff like that and then the kids go to the back sorry spoiler alert but the episode's been out 10 it's years so yeah <laughs> just for the listeners and then the, ki the the kids see the kids talk to the colonel sanders looking architect like from the matrix and um and he's like well here's the secret if you're ready and like they open the door and it's a mirror right it's a reflection of themselves that's and the it. kids, the kids look at each other and say that, and then like the architect jumps in and typical song. See, don't you get the symbolism? Don't you get the symbolism? It's like, yeah, we do. Shut up. Like it was, it, <laughs> that was a very South Park moment. But it, it's but, that, and that's yeah. what you you feed in. How many, you know, how many how many tons of data and text did Chat GPT read to be trained? It was, it's seeing us. Right. It's spitting back at us. Us. Thanks for and putting so, it that way. You know, yes, it... we're biased. We're we're never going yeah. to be neutral. We're never going to. It's not a zero sum game. We're never going to go down the middle. And if you'd have done it a hundred years ago, it would have been slanted the other way. Because or we were there a hundred completely years ago. different other ways, right? Like there are things that oh, Frank, I lost your audio. Oh no, maybe it's me. I still have it. Oh, I it still is have me. It. Okay. I hate this. No, it's a, it's an interesting point because you know, and and standards this is, change. This is change the team's fault. This is not even. It's an Andy fault. Every and it, it's not because I, it happened to me on Zoom earlier. Okay, it's now funny, I can we hear, hear you. you. Okay. No, it's interesting because if you look at like movies, like a Mel Brooks movie, like a Mel Brooks movie could not be made today, right? All right, I didn't hear. And, you. Oh, now I can. Okay. Now you can hear me. Yeah. 
So I, I ended up getting gonna, three was, things in my speakers, and they're all the same. They're the same headphone brand. And I'm like, what are you doing? And it does mm-hmm. it in Zoom. It's not just Teams. Oh, okay. So we're not yeah. bashing Teams. No. No, I mean, it's just, you know, standards change over time, right? What what constitutes yeah. bias or what constitutes the idea of neutral, I think, is 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 a moving target. Absolutely. And That's a great it's, point. It's, uh, I was going to make an analogy about Mel Brooks movies, but, you know, like, I think we lost Andy's audio now. No, no am no, I back? You're back. You're okay. back. I was laughing. Um, a little bit, but so, yeah. so here's a question, Adam. It kind of dovetails nicely into our final question. Is there going to be an audible book, audio book version of this? You know, I, I uh, for those who know a little bit about book publishing, there's an ISBN for the audio version. Mm-hmm. So once we get that recorded, we'll we'll. Uh, have so you are going to do it? Cool. Yeah. Are you going to read it? Yeah, I I, oh, I believe awesome. so. I just think that's the way to go. I mean, I agree. Yeah, I, I audiobooks read by the authors are just incredible. Although there are some really good audiobooks out, uh, some new Star Trek that that are in the Picard sub universe of Star Trek, not read by the author. Incredible. Um, oh, and I know you're yeah. looking for recommendation book recommendations. Mm-hmm. That's, That's probably where your going. next question. Yeah. That's where yeah. So I wasn't planning. Uh, I did my homework, uh, thought ahead. I wasn't planning on recommending those Star Trek books. But they are absolutely incredible prequels okay. and prequels and post sequels. What's the uh, sequels? Sequels, sequels. is the there you go. <laughs> to the Picard show. But okay. oh wait, I also want to recommend one of the shows that this this show today's show has really reminded me of is Halt and Catch Fire. Do you know it? I do. I was yeah. a TV show, wasn't it? Yep. Yeah. And on Audible is a follow up to Halt and Catch Fire. Worth your time. Okay. And then my classic book recommendations, I know these are on Audible, are Weapons of Math Destruction, Kathy O'Neill, Algorithms of Oppression, Sophia Noble, and Super Intelligence by Nick Bostrom. All three of those are also on Audible. And they're, as far as I'm concerned, any reference list in data science that doesn't include those three books is incomplete. Nice. Awesome. I love that dovetailing into you now that you're writing about ethics. I, I'm really I'm really curious to see uh, where you come, how you approach ethical AI, because having this other background that also involves ethics, the law. Sure. Yeah. I, I think you have something to add to that conversation and maybe others. Yeah. Don't. I write extensively about that background in the book as well. Well, not extensively, okay. but I, I make sure I mention that because you're right. There's a connection there. Uh, we we could do a whole show on ethics, maybe. Oh, that'd be uh, awesome. That would be awesome. Actually, where I really cut my teeth on ethics is is in consulting. Because for those of you who've done consulting work, for the listeners, you know you have these conflicted interests. You have your company. You have your client. You have your interests. You get pinched in a way. Mm-hmm. Um, and anyway, so I, I've got, I think some really good, maybe that's another book I should put on my to-do list. I think I've got <laughs> some go. really good advice for consultants who, who want to engage, um, specifically proactively avoid ethical dilemma in the consulting setting. So I'll just leave the teaser there. Ooh, I like it. Yeah, I do too. Yeah. I'd, I'd read that book. I am a consultant. Yeah, so, uh, yep. get totally, uh, totally get that. And however, you're self-employed, so you do have like one less character in that. I do. Sure. Yeah. That thing. I mean, it's still. I'm, I'm right. sure there's still a dilemma because. Uh, and it's you know I, 
it, you know, and there's so there's so many as I kind of think about what you could write about, Adam. There are so many places where you can be pinched. There's not it's not mm -hmm. just it's not just customer and the consultant. It can be the the consulting company and the consultant. Um, there can be personal things that come into play, and you know, conflicts of interest galore. Mm -hmm. So yeah, it's it's a it's a difficult uh, thing, and I, I'd again love to write that book as soon as you're done with this one. Okay. okay. All right. Yeah, and I'll definitely I'll definitely provide you a quote for that. So okay, with that, here. we'll let the nice uh, we'll let Bailey uh, finish the show. Thanks for listening to Data Driven. Have you checked out Data Driven magazine yet? We are looking for writers for the autumn 2023 issue. Please check out datadrivenmagazine.com for more information. Thanks for listening, and be sure to rate and review us on whatever podcasting app you are listening to us on.
it, you know, and there's so there's so many as I kind of think about what you could write about, Adam. There are so many places where you can be pinched. There's not it's not mm -hmm. just it's not just customer and the consultant. It can be the the consulting company and the consultant. Um, there can be personal things that come into play, and you know, conflicts of interest galore. Mm -hmm. So yeah, it's. It's a it's a difficult uh, thing, and I'd, I'd again love to write that book as soon as you're done with this one. Okay, okay. all right. Yeah, and I'll definitely I'll definitely provide you a quote for that. <laughs> okay, so with yeah, that, we'll let the nice uh, we'll let Bailey uh, finish the show. 